Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and I am joined today by my friend, Christine Kim from Bogota, Colombia. Hey, Christine. Hello. Buenos dias, Alex. How's it going there in New York? It's great. And we're going to have, uh, we're going to talk a lot with Christine about Bogota as well as some other crypto news uh, as usual. Um, but before we do that, um, I want to introduce Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. Hey, Bimnet. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. We're going to talk with Bimnet in a minute about markets. And then later in the episode, we're going to talk with Galaxy Digital's head of public policy, Tyler Williams, um, about all of the uh, craziness and 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 uh, stuff happening in Washington in crypto and generally. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about the Federal Reserve and its role in, uh, in, in markets and American, American policy. It's going to be a great conversation. But first, as always, let's go to our friend Bimnet Abibi. Bim, uh, a lot of funny stuff been happening in markets. Um, I was looking at, we're going to talk about a couple things, but one thing that really stood out to me um, was the Bank of England. Uh, they intervened in, in, in uh, markets, uh, what was it, two weeks ago at this point. Um, they've been buying uh, gilts and they told, but then they came out and told what the British pension funds, hey, we're only going to be doing this for three more days, right? So get offload your, I don't know what, what you need to offload to us now. Yeah. Um, but then it was reported by Financial Times that they actually told the bankers privately that they actually wouldn't be stopping it in three days. And then uh, the Bank of England came out and, and denied that they had said that to the bankers. Um, it seems like they're, you know, in and out of markets. You put your right foot in, you put your right foot out, you put your right foot in and you shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about for the Bank of England right now. In and out, um, very like incredible monetary policy. What, what are your thoughts on this? By the way, shout out real quick to uh, several unnamed members of the Galaxy Digital Trading Team for their excellent voices on that on that song. Yeah, we uh, you know do 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 a lot of practice on the trading desk, so um, I'm happy uh, it came to good use. Um, but yeah, so it's it's. I think the way to think about it is that you know the Bank of England finds itself in a predicament that almost every central bank um, in in the developed world finds itself in a, a really high inflation problem. Um, but uh, an economy that has gotten used to free money and bailouts uh, for basically ever. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it's pretty understandable that, you know, they want to take a hard line in terms of monetary policy and they want to let market forces, you know, sort of take interest rates to where they need to get to um, in order to, to dampen inflation. But at the same time, they have a commitment to sort of the public sector um, to not cause like irreparable harm to you know, all of retirees in, in, in the UK. An important and, constituency, And so, no you know, what, what you had happen was, you know, this is very dramatic, but basically, like, from the third week of September, like, you know, you had a move from 350 basis points in 30-year in gilts all the way up to 510. 
These are moves you see over the span of a couple years, not in like a week. And so it was an unprecedented, unprecedented move in, in global fixed income markets. And what made it mo- more sort of uh, relevant and important was that it was happening on the 30-year part of, of the, the, the fixed income curve or, or 20 years and, and beyond. And that's really where our large pensioners institutions with huge like long dated liabilities like insurance companies that's where they park a lot of capital um and so you know when the you know levered retirement based the levered um what, what, what do you call them the pensioners pensioners, the pensioners yeah you know when they have a, a core part of their portfolio depreciating in, in this way I, I mean they're just not going to be able to to meet their their obligations um, and so there was a sort of financial spillover component as well, because a lot of this um, was paid for, you know, via leverage, right? People were borrowing money in the front end um, and deploying it uh, <laughs> in, in the back end, or, you know, they're repoing the securities and, you know, deploying it in, in, into other assets. And so, you know, when, when the asset depreciates like this, you know, you're going to have to make some, some margin calls. And these margin calls were huge. And so, the, you know, the, these pensioners weren't going to be able to, to meet them. And so they've been in the process of unwinding assets right. so that they can meet the, the, these, uh, you know, margin calls potentially. But the interesting part is that it, it was pretty well telegraphed, you know, for the past week. You know, most people thought that the Bank of England was ending its operation this Friday, um, October 14th. And so when the market reacted like it did yesterday to the the initial headline by Bailey saying that, you know, you guys have three days to figure your stuff out. You know, I, I was a bit shocked because that was what was sort of consensus. Right. But again, like this year, what you've seen is that until like the, the main Fed chair or the main central bank chair says something, there's always a little bit of a discount to it. It's like you need Powell not just the other, you know, 15 other members to tell you what, what they're going to do. You need Powell to tell him, tell you specifically. And so that's kind of what you had happen. Uh, but at the end of the day, like these central banks are beholden to the public sector uh, in a way. Yeah. Um, and there is a, a, a threshold of, of pain tolerance that these guys have. And it got real close. Yeah. And you're very close in, in a lot of markets. And, uh, you know, we'll get into it a, a little bit later on the show. But the dollar's appreciation is is getting very, very uncomfortable for a lot of nations, particularly in EM, but also in G10. Um, and so you are at the point where the resilience... <laughs> And the commitment of central bankers to fight inflation is being tested in right. a very meaningful way. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's not a function of like Main Street versus Wall Street. It is like Wall Street and Main Street all declining together, like everybody doing worse. Governments having to pay much more in, in financing, the currency depreciating, everybody's store of wealth getting hurt because inflation's high. So like everyone's in pain right now. And the central bankers, like, they have, you know, they, they either stay committed or, or they start flinching. And, you know, what you had happen with Bank of England was sort of the, the first flinch. Yeah, it's, it's and, we've, and we've heard calls from a lot of people for, if not, um, you know, reversing uh, central bank policy, but at least, you know, um, I don't want to say easing because that has a terminology, but right, you know, dampening a little bit some of yes. the, the hawkishness. Um, there was the UN panel was calling for it. Um, I think even the IMF said something. Um, and Kathy Wood wrote a letter, or the ARC well, CEO. I mean, <laughs> I mean, she's down like 50% plus. 60, yeah. So, 60% plus. So, so. Um, 
yeah, there, there is starting to be some noise. And if you've heard a bunch of commentators now in the U.S., former former Fed officials and um, and folks, I think Larry Summers and everybody is saying like the soft landing is like looking very unlikely right now. And, yeah. And they're they're pressuring and, and hoping that, you know, but but yet the Fed has remained extremely hawkish in its language. Yes. Um, you know, a couple other examples of that, you know, the RBA uh, went to 25 basis point increments recently instead of 50. The Bank of Korea overnight, you know, only hiked by 50 basis points instead of 75 on the concern that there's so much variable debt that, that you know, had to get refinanced. Um, and so you are seeing lots and lots of signs of, you know, potential like risks and capitulation and, and pressure um, on on the central bankers. But in terms of where the U.S. is, they are still so behind the curve on, on inflation, like in terms of actually tackling it, um, that they have no room to, right. to, to do anything but this. We've talked about this. Their credibility is really at stake here. They can't, they can't flinch until, they it, can't until flinch. inflation. Speaking of which, inflation numbers come out tomorrow. Yes. So today is we're recording this on Wednesday, um, October 12th. But inflation, there's an inflation print tomorrow morning on October 13th. Um, what are expectations? Expectations are for 8.1 um, percent year, year over year. year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I don't necessarily think the, the, the number is important um, for a couple of reasons. One, a large part of it is backward looking, right? So you have owner's equivalent rent, which you know has more uh, is more of a backward looking measure. Um, and two, um, people know that the, the economy is turning lower. People know that you know future economic data is going to be bad. Right. And so people are more concerned with, you know, the outlook for future data, not past data. Two, um, you already have terminal rates in the U.S. pricing in more hawkish, a more hawkish outcome than than the Fed said in the in the dot plot. So the dot plot said terminal rates were getting you know, to four and a half percent. The market's pricing in four seventy oh, wow. in 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 terminal rates. So you already have a twenty basis point uh, premium in 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 the market pricing. So the question is on an upside surprise of you know point two or point three um, higher than the the than the eight point one. Mm-hmm. You know how how much higher can can rates really extend, knowing that the market has a focus on on future data. Um, and so my my thought process is that you know this number is going to be one of the less relevant numbers because you've had sort of, you know, key pieces of data start to turn already. Uh, The main one being uh, job openings, right? You had a 1 million uh, decline in in job openings um, last last week. Um, So that's, you know, one one of the first signs that the labor market was cracking. Secondly, you've had uh, manufacturing data start to really um, turn lower. Um, and, And three, it's just like, people that are forecasting data on a go forward basis i mean like jamie Dimon was was on cnbc the other day calling for you know a pretty reasonable recession over the next year most of the talking heads are talking about a you know a hard landing scenario in, in 2023 um and the fed is is more than uh you know capable of, of telling people that you know monetary policy works on a lag it does it's not instantaneous mm-hmm. and so there is enough of a uh, you know, rationale for, 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 for this number to really not matter that much. Um, and the other thing to think about is just positioning is so bearish. We've had consistent beats on inflation. The inflation story has not, you know, changed that much. Right. People know it's really bad. Right. It's not about now, though. It's about where inflation is going to be on a look go forward basis. 
And right now, the market's telling you inflation is really not going to be a problem in one to two years. The implied in, uh, inflation break-evens for one year and two year are around 2.5%. So the market's telling the Fed that if they take terminal rates to 4.5 or 4.70, that in one year time and two years time, inflation will get to target. And I don't think this one number um, is really going to change things that much because like, it, but for markets the reasons, have been hysterical. Uh, they are around yeah. this data. Yep. So I mean, if it's you know, absolutely. I mean, I you know, I, I'm just from watching the last several of these. Like you know, if it's point one higher, maybe the it won't be too hysterical. But if it's more than that, um, then expectations people are gonna are gonna freak again. And it's it, I've never seen such eyeballs. I, at least you know, in my lifetime, it hasn't been like this, right? So this is yeah. been, the, the the data like ingestion speed and the franticness around it um on the other hand if we come in under expectations people are going to start to pull forward some of that future inflation yep. uh, data in their minds right they're going to say oh my gosh it's starting to finally work yeah because we really haven't seen much you're right there's some other data but in terms of the inflation data we haven't seen anything really i mean you had producer prices beat this morning right uh i mean like there, there hasn't been any relief really no. uh, i like even like you know things like apparel prices actually you know what uh, there, there's a company that reported earnings this morning, uh, a very large, uh, you know, conglomerate um, that is in the, the consumer space. Um, and they said that after uh, raising prices 8% so far this year, they plan on raising prices by another 8% wow. for, for the balance of the oh year. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, we can't name single name equities <laughs> on, on this chat, but I'm sure everybody would, would know the name. Um, but there, there's a lot of price increases that have yet to happen as well, right. because you know companies are, are generally concerned about you know uh, maintaining market share. Um, in addition, uh, you know there have been several uh, companies that are okay with with the margin compression, right? Like they want to make sure that their their customers aren't getting hosed, you know, when they're feeling it the most, right? In terms of you know inflationary they keep pressure, them as customers, yeah. yeah. And so there's there hasn't been like full blown like inflation pass through to consumers. Some of it has come at the expense of profit margins of, of companies. Yeah. Um, but th what this company specifically said was that the consumer in the U.S. has been very resilient in terms of how they've uh, reacted so to the price increases. Spending isn't going down. Spending isn't going down, and they're saying that it's it, it's meaningful enough that they can increase prices by another you know clip of eight percent. Still maintain those and customers st and still maintain it because that's how healthy the U.S. Wow. consumer is. Good lord. And 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 the U.S. consumer is healthy because I mean when you take just if you take a step back and look at what financial markets have done to to uh, asset prices over the past thirty years. Bonds have rallied in a straight line for 30, 40 years, right? Equity markets have rallied for straight line for 30, 40 years. You've had a social safety net program in, in the United States that has expanded beyond belief. You've had record levels of, of stimulus over COVID. Three three stimulus checks, the PPP loans that, that got forgiven. Over a trillion dollars the, of stimulus. The, uh, the student loans that, that were just recently forgiven. People have been like incredibly rewarded, especially in the U.S., uh, for investing in assets and less so for savings because interest rates have been generally right. going down. But you can't just take all that wealth away. You can't take away, you know, all of those thirty years of savings. appreciation. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the last thing is just when you set interest rates to zero and everybody borrows thirty-year mortgages at three percent. Like nobody is, like wants to sell their home, and two, like the mortgage payments are like 
pretty affordable <laughs> yeah. now. These mortgages are assets. And so it's going to take a while for the U.S. consumer to really feel it. And that just means the Fed has to be more hawkish. This is the good news is bad news, the upside down that we live in. All right. One last thing uh, with you, Bimnet, before we move on. You know, we were looking at Bitcoin price, uh, we, which we do all the time, obviously. I, I dream about it. Yeah, a lot. you dream about it. And, uh, you know, over the last quarter, it's been extremely stable. Right. I think it's ranged basically between the high 18s and the low 22s, uh, 22,000. Um, and it's been basically pinned to 19K now since, you know, uh, really around August, basically. Yep. Um, that's an incredibly low amount of volatility. And I think Bitcoin's vol on a 30-day basis, realized vol is like 25. Um, it's historically been like a 70, 80, 90, 100 vol asset. Um, so that's very notable. Um, is Bitcoin a stable coin? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh Yes and no. I, I think one of the biggest reasons why Bitcoin's volatility has been so low is because of just the sheer magnitude of the move it's already had. Right. Right. You've gone from 69,000 to, to 20,000. Right. There's already been a very meaningful correction in price. Right. Right. And so I think Bitcoin, as a function of you know what, what's been going on in the world, has probably corrected a reasonable amount. Right. Now you have an absence of any real material upside catalysts, though, um, in the sense that so we know, have, until we have, you get a central bank pivot, you can't. There's not going to be risk appetite to go so buy have, magic internet money. Yeah, we have seller exhaustion and yes. we have lack of upside catalyst, and so that's why we're pinned in there. I, just a couple things that are uh, more volatile than Bitcoin, though, which, and I'm harping on this because this has been historically one of the main criticisms of Bitcoin as money. Right. Is that, um, you know, we know it's it's censorship resistant. It's durable. It's global. It's fungible. It has all these great monetary qualities, um, but it's been volatile. Its exchange rate to the U.S. dollar has been volatile. But some things that are more volatile than Bitcoin, the S&P 500 is a 26 volatility. Bitcoin's a nice, cool 25 right below it. Most commodities significantly more volatile. Uranium at 56 wheat, that old mainstay wheat. You know, the bottom of the FDA's food pyramid, you know, probably wrongly, but in my opinion, yeah. this is not a food podcast. Um, 48, um, lumber, 68, oil, uh, 41. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, Bitcoin's not as volatile as wood. I think no. that, that, that's interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And I, I think this this vol regime that, that we're in right now for, brick, for uh, Bitcoin is definitely conducive of, of greater adoption, Yeah. right? For huge institutional allocators, right? They can allocate more the lower the vol uh, of, of the asset. Right. Um, and so, you know, generally speaking, I, I think it's a, a sign that this is a market that's matured um, and one that, you know, like scales, right? The, the more mature that this market gets, like the much, much bigger, you know, yeah, it's, we hope it's gonna that, get. We I hope think. that vol stays low in general. Um, but definitely uh, no gonna, guarantee that it will. But yeah, I mean, at a certain point, I mean, the, the way that the rally is going to shake out is you're going to have a spot up, vol up rally. Yeah, for well, sure. Well, vol will explode to, to the upside just because, you know, there, there, there is, um, you know, li liquidity is is a strange concept in the sense that, uh, you know, a market can go without a bid. A market can go without an offer. So you can see and like there's weekend price action in, in totally. crypto liquidations and stuff so there's lots of dynamics that um can uh, can sort of cause you know crypto to have these huge insanely like 
asymmetric like liquidity events. And yeah. so that's just something to be uh, cautious about. But high level, I think the fact that, you know, Bitcoin doesn't really want to break down, that ETH doesn't really want to break down is a sign that there is seller exhaustion. There's a, It's a sign that there is no very little to to any forced selling that that's left in, in the market. And what you're left with is real uh, believers in, mm-hmm. in the space, uh, market participants that don't care if Bitcoin goes up, down 5 10% or ETH up, down 5 10%. They're in it for the long haul. And so I think the longer you see this kind of vol paradigm, the, the more asymmetric the, the, the upside gets. Awesome. Bimnet, Abibi. Galaxy Digital Trading, thank you so much, as always, our friend, and uh, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, Christine, you're in Bogota. Uh, first of all, tell us about Bogota. So you're there, to, I guess I'll say, you're there for DevCon, the giant Ethereum conference. Um, what's it like? It's so good. It's so fun. I think um, DevCon this year, because this is the first DevCon since DevCon Osaka, which was basically three years ago, and the merge has recently happened, um, people are really here like with a very celebratory attitude. So it's very like fun and chill vibes. There's definitely like some good serious talks going on uh, for the conference. But I think from from the opening ceremonies, which happened yesterday, it's very much like like, let's celebrate how far we've come and how much we've achieved over the past three years. There was this like really great opening video um, showing all of the upgrades that have happened since um, what, what year is it? Since 2019. Um, and all of the talks by like Aya and Vitalik and Danny Ryan were were very inspiring. I will note that um, most of the talks that I've attended so far, um, no matter what part of Ethereum development is, be it staking or rollups or MEV, the conversations have focused on Ethereum censorship resistance. So I think that topic is very like top of mind for everybody. It's being brought up constantly on like any of these panels. Um, and I would say that I, I think it's so far like the buzzword for, for DevCon in Bogota. Yeah, that's great to hear. It's a, it's obviously a big issue, and um, I hope it comes to the forefront because there's been a lot of stuff that we've been worried about. We've talked about on the podcast a lot, so that's great to hear. Okay, so let's talk about some crypto news. Um, I'm happy to hear that DevCon is awesome. We'll get more about that. By the way, Christine has an awesome talk that she did yesterday at DevCon on the uh, history of Ethereum's supply since Genesis um, which, of course, matters a lot. Uh, who owns the supply of a proof-of-stake network, which Ethereum now is. Um, you can see that on devcon.org, um, and we will try to include the link in the show notes. Um, so check that out. But, Christine, let's talk about a couple news items. Um, the first one I wanted to ask you about was Arbitrum, um, which is the roll-up uh, on Ethereum. Their their builder, Offchain Labs, has acquired Prismatic Labs, which is a core team behind Ethereum's merge. And they also uh, build one of Ethereum's, um, they, they build Prism, which is Ethereum's most popular consensus layer client. This seems like a big deal, the roll-up buying the core dev team. Yeah, I this was definitely a news topic that I wanted to discuss on today's call. Um, I saw the news go live today, and I think... For both sides of the equation, it makes sense and it, it's it's really good. Um, and I'll explain why. For Prism, being a client team on Ethereum is a very thankless job. You're essentially building a product, like an open source product for anybody to use um, that's not ever going to be monetized. Um, and that product is something that requires a ton of 
development um, effort. It's also like an extremely um, time sensitive job because of the number of upgrades that happen on Ethereum and also the amount of things that you need to keep track of. It's truly like a full-time job, not, not something you can really do on the side. Um, so I think like Prism being part of Arbitrum and being able to get the resources they need to just continue to do what they do, like continue to maintain the most popular, the best like Ethereum, um, most usable, like user-friendly um, Ethereum consensus layer client is something that Prism needed like just having like working off of grants from the ethereum foundation um in the long term especially if you're a majority client is not super financially feasible and then for arbitrum i mean it's a no-brainer that of course they would want to buy like a very reputable client team because that means that they can get involved in the ethereum protocol core development and they can start to push for things that would benefit um rollups like EIP 4844. Um, so, I mean, I get, I get that, that it's really good for Prism, but I also think that like for Arbitrum, this is perhaps like a bigger deal and like uh, more like strategic from Arbitrum's side. Um, and I think like the merging of like Arbitrum as it's like business, it really does give validation over Ethereum's roadmap for scalability that rollups are like inherently integrated into this into this design for ethereum scalability um such that prism which is such a such a core like consensus layer client is now part of that part of one of the rollups um there is of course controversy that i've seen around this on twitter um some people were talking about how this acquisition um may it may like um it may start to to create create some kind of imbalance in like Ethereum's p power structure of, of having Arbitrum be able to sway different Ethereum core development decisions. Um, but I don't think it's quite clear that like Prism would ever operate in such a way where they're uh, less Ethereum aligned and more Arbitrum aligned. And if those like interests would ever kind of like butt heads with one another. Um, so I think, I think for now, like at face value, I get, I understand the decision of why Prism did this. And also of course, why Arbitrum would want to do this if this opportunity had arisen and if Prism was looking for um, buyers. Um, it's kind of similar to how like Beisu and Teku are owned by consensus and um you know, the Geth client is maintained by Ethereum Foundation. Um, I think more and more, if you want to be a major client, you do kind of need like a primary backer. Um, and if you're a minority client, I think you can definitely get by with like grants and stuff. But um, I think it's it's hard. Being a, a client developer is not, not easy. Yeah, I think um, it makes a lot of sense. I think also for Arbitrum, you know, with, you know, whether it's dank sharding or, or, or just in general trying to improve Arbitrum, um, you know, they have uh, access now to, you know, really strong protocol developers that could probably help Arbitrum itself uh, succeed. Right. Um, and, and, you know, this is something Satoshi Nakamoto talked about was who was going to pay um, core developers. And one of the ideas was, um, you know, for Bitcoin, obviously, one of the ideas was that, well, perhaps the companies who benefit from Bitcoin would be the ones that pay developers. And you've seen a lot of that through grants. But, you know, also even here at Galaxy, we employ 
um, at least one developer who, who almost exclusively contributes to open source Bitcoin development, right? So it's a kind of a, it, it makes sense. It's not a, it's not a surprising uh, path, I don't think. Um, well, Christine, I'm going to leave it here with you and let you get back out at DevCon um, and we'll learn more about your travels and stuff. And like I said, um, for our listeners, uh, Christine's great talk, uh, which we watched live here back in New York, um, is on devcon.org, and we'll throw that link in the uh, in the show notes. So, Christine, great to great to see you, um, and we'll we'll get you back next week, as always. Yeah, I'll see you soon. I'll be back in New York soon. As promised, we're now joined by uh, my friend Tyler Williams, head of public policy at Galaxy Digital. Uh, guy lives in Washington, both you know, <laughs> physically and intellectually. Um, so Tyler, good to see you, man. Well, I physically live there. I'm not sure if I intellectually live okay, there, fair. or at least I don't want to admit that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, gosh, there's been a lot going on. We've written a lot about it and talked a lot about it. We had you on a few months ago at this point, maybe back in July. Um, I think we were talking about the Lummis Gillibrand bill at that time, um, in the Senate, which was a comprehensive regulatory framework proposed by those senators, uh, in, in the, in that, in the Senate. And, um, a lot of other stuff has been going on in Washington since then. What Give us a, sort of an update on, on what you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, A, thanks for having me back. And always good to be in New York with yeah. you. Lots going on in Washington, despite both chambers of Congress not physically being there or in session, which is part of the allure of like what's happening in crypto policy in D.C. Interesting. Yeah. So they're not in session uh, because the election, the midterm elections come up. Right. So that, that's really the sole focus of what people are focused on in Washington. There's a lot of, you know, prediction sort of, um, you know, bench projections of horse what's going to happen in Washington, who's going to win the horse race. That's that's exactly right. Right. So there's probably three big things that are consuming people in Washington. It's like what happens on the first Tuesday in November. And then it's what happens for a spending negotiation in Congress, whether or not there's an omnibus appropriations or if there's a continuing resolution to fund the government. And then the third thing is uh, probably the National Defense Authorization Act. So those are the three big ticket things. So we got to pay Washington for the government. we got to pay for the military. And we got to find out who's going to be voting on those things. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Well, Makes we know sense. who's going to be voting on those things. We got to find out who's going to be voting on those things in the next Congress, in the which majority. will begin yeah. in the majority in the House and the Senate, and uh, then we'll get to figure out who's going to be voting on those things next Congress. Yeah. So crypto uh, legislation and policy, though, um, while not at the forefront right now. Um, while these uh, members and senators are all at home campaigning, basically, most of them, or if you're, I guess, if you're a two thirds of the senators are just at home kicking it up, watching football, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, you've got 34 senators who are working hard to get reelected. Yeah. And then you've got the entirety of the House that is up. Yeah. So but on the crypto front, there's been some stuff. There was a bill um, that was had been reported on um, that had been being negotiated in the House Financial Service Committee between. Um, the chair uh, person, Maxine Waters, and the ranking member, Patrick McHenry. Um, how the, We haven't seen it yet. It was reported to now maybe be delayed. Um, but it was a, it, this was intriguing to us because this is a Republican and a Democrat. The ranking, the leading Republicans and Democrats on the committee that oversees a lot of our financial infrastructure in the House. Um, what's up with that bill? Yeah. Um, well, maybe let me back up for a second and say there's probably two pieces of 
crypto legislation that are widely viewed, I think, in Washington as having the best chances of uh, achieving an outcome this Congress. And when I say best chances, I I personally believe that there's probably uh, on the high end a 10, 15 percent chance of (laughs) getting enacted. However, it's better than where we started again uh, or started from a few years ago. And it's a non-zero chance. And in Washington, when you have big spending packages coming together, you have omnibus appropriations, you have the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, there's always a chance things get uh, slipped in there. The the sausage making isn't pretty and they (laughs) always like slip things in. So there's a non-zero chance. And uh, there's one piece of legislation in the Senate Ag Committee that is, again, being worked on in a bipartisan fashion between uh, the chair and the ranking member who are uh, Senator Stabenow and Bozeman. And it's principally to push regulation into the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, both on a primary and a secondary market basis. So not only for token issuance and what a digital asset commodity looks like and regulatory rails for that, but also what happens in the secondary market for trading and other activities. So that's one piece, and it enjoys pretty broad bipartisan support. You've got, um, I think, at least four senators who are on the bill in terms of being co-sponsors, two Republicans and two Democrats. And, uh, you know, there's the old adage in Washington that um, uh, the House passes ideas and the Senate passes laws. And uh, you can see that there's perhaps a better chance of that bill serving as a moving vehicle. However, I I worked in the House and uh, the House is uh, near and dear to my heart. In, in the House, you have uh, Chairwoman uh, Waters and you have Ranking Member McHenry who are working on a bipartisan basis to produce a regulatory framework for stablecoin issuers. Right. And a lot of people in the crypto space and a lot of people in Washington, A, view stablecoins as uh, the least objectionable matter to tackle in the space, but also perhaps the easiest one because it's the most similar to other financial services products that we've come to know in our economy. And I think if we step, there's, there's lots of great things in the bill and uh, there's, uh, you, can't, you can't emphasize enough how difficult it is for two members from different political parties to get together and actually work on something on a constructive basis. So you have to give them a lot of praise and their staff a lot of praise right. for doing that. And I think if you think about the regulatory environment and the laws that we enjoy today in our society that um, stablecoin issuers are looking to, it, it's largely at a federal level. You look at the trust company supervision and prudential regulatory regime for trust companies. And then you have uh, on the state side, you have um, them being regulated as money services businesses. And then you have some lighter touch prudential rules around that to minimize the risk of failures there. But on on the federal level, we don't really have a comprehensive regulatory framework for stablecoin issuers. So we're moving towards that, and that's the the biggest pro of the bill. Right, just the fact that we're gonna get something, some clarity. Um, I remember some of the stuff that was very non-objectionable for these centrally uh, issued fiat-backed stablecoins was like collateral transparency, some guardrails around what types of collateral they can hold. This feels like stuff that feels like stuff that almost everyone agrees to. And, and frankly, the market of the existing fiat stablecoins, certainly USDC, but, but also Tether, is already moving in that direction because that's what the market wants. Yeah, I, I think the the move towards having clear prudential regulations and clear supervisory framework is a 
net positive that can't be underscored. So, so who would regulate? These that, that, this is always the problem. Yeah, like, right. Who ends up being the regulators <laughs> right. uh, of these entities? Well, it, it appears for under the the draft bill, which hasn't been introduced yet. Um, so you know things could always change. Under the draft bill, it contemplates sort of a a two tiered licensing regime that I think about. If you are a an insured depository institution, um, you can come underneath a regulatory framework, basically where you have um, the federal depository institutions being the FDIC, the OCC, and the uh, NCUA, the National Credit Union Administration, being the primary regulator for the stablecoin issuers. The bill also contemplates a non-bank process. So if you are a licensed entity at a federal level and a non-bank, meaning you're not taking deposits or customer deposits, right. not providing FDIC insurance, that you can also seek a regulatory process. And then there's the a state process as well uh, that you can get licensed in uh, a state in which you are domiciled and Say duly regulated. New York, for yeah, example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the and it would allow for sort of each of these. So it's right now it seems like it's not really picking winners and losers among the regulatory bodies. It's sort of saying, well, if you're a bank, then you go where you go for your bank stuff, and if you're a non-bank, then we're gonna. Well, wait a sec. Where where would the non-banks go? Yeah. So. It, under the non-bank process, and this again, like the draft bill hasn't been introduced, so we don't know exactly, and things can always change. Under under the non-bank process, there's going to be a, again, a, a production process where you produce reports to federal regulators, including on like the financial so condition. Like so there's going to be transparency stuff. mechanism. Yeah. It, it appears as if for the non-banks, there's going to be a licensing regime that you would go to the Federal Reserve to seek a license. And um, to me, that's concerning from a variety of reasons. And I, I think concerning that it's the Fed. Yeah, I, I think it's concerning that it's the Fed, but it's it's understandable in the sense that if you are a non-bank entity and if you're um, not if there's not a clear licensing regime that fits within one of the other prudential depository regulators, where's the nearest and best case place that you can go? Right. And, and, and there isn't anywhere really to go. There isn't so anywhere. And people they have to pick somewhere. And people often look to the Fed for those circumstances. Like we've looked to the Fed and other emergency liquidity programs that we've set up both recently in the COVID crisis. And then in the 2008 crisis, we used them for all of the 13-3 programs that we set up to provide emergency liquidity programs. Right. So it's understandable why it's the Fed. I think in in my mind, what's concerning about the Fed perhaps moving into the territory of a licensing and chartering agency is that it hasn't historically served that capacity. So this is like novel authority. Yeah, it, it would be novel authority, absolutely. So if you think about the other bank regulators, if you think about the credit union regulators, they charter and license entities. They charter new banks, they approve mergers, they do all that good stuff. And they have capacity to do it. And if you think about the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, they have um, authority and experiencing licensing credit card companies. They have experience in licensing banks and trust companies, all, all that good stuff. And so they, they have a dedicated team. They have internal capacity. They have lawyers who know this stuff and are steeped in the process. So they could license stablecoin issuers. It's just a new, an additional entity. Yeah, it's it that they add to their existing licensing regime. Ab absolutely, but the Fed doesn't have such a regime. Not to my knowledge, no. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the Fed has uh, principally 
two mandates. They have their monetary policy hat, and then they have their supervisory uh, hat that they wear through the reserve banks. And uh, when I say wear, they mostly execute all of their uh, prudential supervisory and regulatory authorities through the reserve bank system. Right. And so I think I think that's probably the biggest problem. And then there's a layer within that of whether or not there is some chance that if you are a state chartered entity that is seeking a uh, license under the new this newly hypothetical regulatory regime, would the Federal Reserve have a potential look through and a hook over those state chartered licensed entities? So you imagine if you're South Dakota or if you're Wyoming and you've been working for uh, the past seven, eight years or whatever it is in terms of creating a, uh, a, a legal regulatory framework for the digital asset economy. And then all of a sudden you have the Fed coming in with the hammer uh, to regulate those institutions and tell the states what to do. That that could be a problem. It's, it's really interesting because, um, and maybe it would help if we talked more about like the historic role of the Fed, because this is, the Fed is unelected. Right. Certainly the board is appointed and, and confirmed by Congress, appointed by the president. Right. Um, but they're not elected They're And they're not really we were debating this last night. It's they're not really a commission of the they're not a commission. Um, they're a bank themselves um, with regional offices, regional uh, uh, departments. And and um, they, they're not very they're not really supervised by Congress or the government, really. Right. I mean, they have this appointment function, but there's no they, they I guess they have to appear. The, the chairman of the Fed has to appear publicly for hearings on a periodic basis. Yeah, You have the Humphrey Hawkins process where the, the chair of the Federal Reserve has to appear. I think it's biannually in front of, of but there's no audit. There's no deep transparency. Right. I mean, there's no they don't have to. Do they when 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 Chairman Powell goes to Congress, does he bring a giant box of documents with him? Just his testimony, but he doesn't bring in the staff. Does. That's what I'm saying. But just but just testimony, right? right. That's his only requirement. Um, and so, in that way, to me, it's 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 been troubling that for the Fed to gain additional powers. Yeah, there, there's no supervisory or there's no oversight hook that Congress can leverage over the Federal Reserve in a in the same capacity that they do over the SEC or the FDIC. Yeah, uh, even more so the the banking regulators versus the independent market regulators being the SEC and the CFTC. But yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, so so I I think you're you're totally right. The, The arc in the history of the Fed is both like, super interesting and alarming at some at right. some level i'm not sure which more um if you if you go back to the the very beginning in the first bank of the united states the the public trust and or the public distrust i should say led to a failure to renew the original charter of the the first bank of the united states right and this was the bank that alexander hamilton right. created in order to assume the state's debts as one central That's national right. entity and, and then yeah. you had the the second bank of the united states which uh andrew jackson was vehemently opposed to and ultimately vetoed a bill in uh, i think 1832 that um closed the bank and then you had the early 1907 panic that reinvigorated the desire to produce um, emergency currency and that created the national uh, monetary commission to determine you know what changes 
might be needed to the monetary system and laws for banking and currency. And then five years later, you have President Wilson who signed legislation creating the Federal Reserve. And again, you had public distrust and concern about the power that was being centralized in Wall Street or Washington that led to the decentralized structure of the Federal Reserve being the 12 reserve banks. The regional Fed banks. Exactly, exactly. And then you have a a series of legislation that has occurred over the time, over years after that. And you have 1933 that the 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 Banking Act 1933 that created the Federal Open Market Committee. And so you have a a litany of other um, acts that Congress has passed to amend and change the Federal Reserve. And I think most significantly in in recent time, you have in 2008, the financial crisis, and it caused a bunch of different changes and criticisms of the Federal Reserve and the response to the the crisis. Uh, But it gave the Fed additional authorities in my mind there was there was it was being billed as a curtailment of the fed's emergency liquidity programs under section 13.3 of the federal reserve act but i think you have to really open your mind and question like did it do that if we re-implemented the same playbook in the covid crisis that was exercised in the 08 crisis prior to the reforms. Right. So it's a, it's a big open question. Yeah, it's it's been really strange, I mean, to think about, you know, I have a I, in my mind the 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 story of money and the state is obviously highly intertwined and often the state itself was who minted the money. Um you go back to like Roman times, um you have the denarii and the sesterci and a bunch of other, I mean, a long history in Rome and they always end up debasing the money um and then they have a collapse and then they have to rebase it. Right. And, you know, there, there was a long history of contro- of banks controlling the outcomes in geopolitical conflicts in Europe. Um, I just I'm throw this out here. It's one of my favorite quotes uh, from Thomas Jefferson. You talked about the controversy about the first bank of the United States. Right. The, by the way, this is a great part of the plot in the musical Hamilton, um, if people have heard this. But um, Jefferson uh, and and his sort of side of the aisle at the time were extremely opposed to it. And Jefferson famously said, if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around the banks will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. The issuing power should be taken away from banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. So, I mean, this is a, I know that, you know, recent, um, you know, market participants over the last, you know, decades, um, the Fed's primary powers, right, of of controlling monetary policy, um, let alone these extreme powers like quantitative easing and, and all the other crazy stuff they've been doing, they seem normal to a lot of people. But historically, it's quite an anomaly that, that, uh, or it's, it's, it's always been controversial, I should say. Yeah, I think it's always been controversial. And I think the, the arc of how we started in terms of the modern creation of the Federal Reserve System has gone from a, a general distrust of the creation of the First Bank of the United States to att- an attempt to depoliticize the existence and the the structure and the governance over the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee and the board, 
And I, I forgot to mention that in the uh, federal, um, in the Banking Act of 1935, it actually removed the Treasury Secretary and the uh, Comptroller of the Currency from the governance of the modern day reserve banks. So right. now you've it's moved into really depoliticized exactly. it if they could. Yeah. Exactly. But now you've moved into this world where maybe you've depoliticized it, which I, I don't subscribe to that philosophy. Maybe you've depoliticized it to some degree, but you've created this entity that is so empowered and has so much authority over the um, health and wellness of our economy that vesting it with additional authorities that we were talking about, if you do that, you just need to be really careful and needs to be strict guardrails over it. And Congress needs to control that oversight mechanism versus someone or versus investing with the people who are just unelected. Bureaucrats. Right. Because they're so powerful, but so little direct oversight. Right. So we're sort of outsourcing. In some ways, it's kind of like the Supreme Court of money. It, right. Because we appoint these people. <laughs> now, it's not for life, but we, but the, we control the appointments that people do. But that's about it. That's about it. Yeah. We control the appointments. That's about it. And. If we circle back to the the stablecoin legislation, the the Fed does a bunch of really important things in our society. They uh, run a huge payments network, right? So they they serve as like the clearing function and uh, the the clearinghouse for private sector financial tra transactions to promote efficiency in the overall banking system. Super important. Right. So they serve that. They're a fiscal agent. Uh, they're the, the monetary authority. They're the chief negotiator with other central banks and a litany of other things. And now we're gonna like create this new licensing regime that empowers them a little bit more. What what interest do they have in, in embracing a potentially competing product to the well, products that they offer? That's what's so interesting is that the stable coin is, now first of all, if we end up getting Fed licensed stable coins, let's just assume that somehow this happens or in a, in a world that this occurs, is that the CBDC? First of all, I mean, this is kind of what we argued when we wrote about the presidential working group's report, um, which frankly is pretty in line with this proposed legislation, which was really like Congress should act and sort of like the existing banks should go through their existing regulators and that it shouldn't be a an independent Fed coin, but it should be through the commercial banking system as it exists. And I, I called that report, PWG report gives glimpse of digital dollar. This seems like this could end up being the takeover by the Fed of, because I, I need to point out, right, today, the vast majority, if not all of the supply of dollar-denominated stable coins is issued by non-banks. So this isn't really a trivial question. This is, if, if that is who, if the Fed is who would regulate non-bank stablecoin issuers, then that would functionally, today at least, give them control over basically 100% of the U.S.-denominated Stablecoin right. market. Right. Well, as I, as I said a minute ago, the, the Fed is a market participant that engages in competition with other private sector counterparties and their relationship with banks, with commercial banks, is pretty symbiotic. They use commercial banks in the money creation cycle and banks serve that function. And so now you have this new product that's coming into the mix and you have stable coins seeking a federal licensure. 
do we really believe that that is going to be a open and transparent process that embraces competition, that makes all of the market better and, and, and serves the purpose of reducing payments friction? Do we believe that's going to happen? I mean, we certainly hope it's going to happen and we can believe it all we want or not believe it. But the primary point is that we have no way to guarantee it. Right. I mean, that's without these guardrails and, and actual oversight of the Fed. Right. I mean, remember Ron Paul was calling for auditing the Fed. Yeah. Um, which people laughed at or, you know, bankers and Fed people laughed at. So that's crazy. But it's not crazy. We audit almost everything. Right. That's that's a core oversight is a core function of our House of Representatives and our Senate. Right. Um, so without it, that's the thing. Do we believe it? I don't know if we believe it. Um, but we can't guarantee it. I still, I personally am the belief that something is better than nothing. And on stable coins, on, generally, on stable coins, yeah. generally. And if it can be a uniting force that can bring members of Congress together to produce an outcome that's that advances the industry, that that to me is a huge win. Whether or not we get hundreds of different licensed stablecoin issuers that are issuing fully reserved right a nice robust competitive environment exactly whether or not we can get that i think that's pretty unlikely particularly if you have i don't know how many um banks there are in the united states it's it's close to five thousand. it's probably like 4800 or so down yeah it's down like we've been clipping 100 banks on a per quarter basis um for the past couple years i i think it's i think it's speculative to believe that we would have a bunch of stablecoin issuers that are competing in a marketplace that existing insured depository institutions could spin up a product pretty quickly. Right. I think that's part of the fear is that there's regulatory capture here, perhaps, that makes it improbable for that could harm innovation overall, right. harm competition in the market. And particularly when, you know, if we take the two, I mean, the two biggest stablecoins are Tether and, and USDC. You know, I don't know who knows how Tether would react under this legislation, by the way. They're not an onshore U.S. entity. So we'll see. We'll see what, that, that's another interesting question about what would happen in a regulated uh, U.S. stablecoin regime um, how, where Tether would fit in. But, you know, the biggest onshore issuer is Circle, and they would presumably become a Fed regulated entity in a, in a way that the Fed has never before regulated or overseen or licensed anyone. Um, and that that is that is new and weird. Yeah. Well, I, I think on the tether matter, I think that they would be it would be illegal for them to become a stablecoin issuer in the U.S. Um, because they have to prescribe to the framework that's set up in the legislation. Well, they would have to prescribe to it. Yeah. Yeah. If, if they were to be yeah. big open question. I think. It, yeah. I mean, no. I mean, clearly this this type of legislation would require you to come in from the cold if you are out there right and 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 follow all of this stuff uh, big question is more about they, what, they would have to what, re-domesticate yeah, into exactly. the US that's and then yeah that's, that's what i'm saying that's a yeah, bridge pretty you know, far for them i would say uh, well i i agree, I agree. It, it's so but then you get into some really interesting things let's assume they don't um or can't then you now have a big bifurcation in the core of the crypto markets right with tether being illegal in the US perhaps under right. this this le- proposed legislation and and circle only so then you have but, yeah so and these things by the way it doesn't that doesn't matter a ton in the centralized exchange space which are mostly jurisdictional today so you know maybe if you're not in the US fine you can use tether that's fine um, but if you're trading on a US exchange then you can't but where it really starts to matter is in in defi on chain because these things mix together a lot and they're you know on the cloud you know, if we consider on the on-chain environment like sort of a cloud, it's global, right? There's not, 
there is no national border like you know in 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 the internet and to the extent there is right there they have to put up a, a firewall but the actual internet itself right is not so then we end up with this bifurcation the segmentation of the on-chain environment between sort of legal and illegal in the u.s and and that that's that's too bad if that's what we get. I hope we don't get that, right? Right. Because that's bad for liquidity. It's bad for everything in right. general. You mentioned the PWG report. On, yeah. You, I know you guys have written about it in the past. It was like a it's, year ago at this yeah, point. Yeah, a year ago. And, you know, it, it's not surprising that many of those principles are embedded within this draft legislation. You know, the, the Fed and the Treasury Department are always going to be chiefly involved in negotiations with Congress about these new types of frameworks. And I, I think you have to commend the bill drafters because they at least got to a perspective of saying, hey, let's make sure there's a, a pathway for non-banks and let's make sure there's a pathway for state licensed entities. The question is whether or not we believe that that framework that they've proposed will enable enough competition uh, in the market and will be a fair and ubiquitous right. process. No, you definitely have to commend the attempt. Um, and we, uh, you know, and we do. And we'll just have to see where it plays out. All right, Tyler. Uh, great to have you as always, man. Uh, we'll, we'll have you back again soon. And um, you know, I, I just I don't, you gonna throw an election party down there in Washington or anything? Or you, you're, does it not matter? I mean, you're jaded. You've been working in politics for a long time. Yeah, I've, I've been working in <laughs> politics for a long time. I'm definitely not, maybe I'm jaded, but I don't think of myself as <laughs> no, I don't really jaded. jaded no. um, I'm not going to be throwing any election party. I think <laughs> my uh, my days of going to those may be behind me. Oh, okay. but you never know. You All never right. Know. Well, Tyler Williams, head of public policy at Galaxy Digital, thank you, my friend, for coming, and great to see you here in New York. Uh, we'll, we'll catch up again soon. Good to see you. I appreciate you having me. That's it. That's all we've got for Galaxy Brains and, and folks listening. Really appreciate uh, you tuning in. A reminder, I said last week, if you're still uh, listening to the end of this podcast, send us your questions or comments. Send us a voice memo directly, research at galaxy.com, uh, or you know, do, do it through our Twitter account. That's totally fine. GLXY Research would love to host um, some uh, questions and and particularly if they are voice I'd love to have your voice on our podcast um, about an issue of the day um, that's it everyone have a great weekend and we'll be back to you next week thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research if you enjoyed the show please like, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if you want to learn more about the work we do at Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content online at galaxy.com research and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. That's all for today. See you next time.